Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco Radio with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. In the next 60 minutes, I'll be bringing some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monaco Radio. This week, we explore the concept of cuteness. From Victorian cat memes to Hello Kitty spaghetti hoops, not to mention video games and Harajuku street style, at the very least, this exhibition shows the sheer force of the cute aesthetic. Plus, we speak with acclaimed chef Daniel Hum. I had a very powerful experience when I was 10 years old and my parents brought me to the Laurentiary in Paris to see the Monet water lilies. And I just went through these two rooms being fully surrounded by these large-scale paintings and I started to cry. All that and much more in the next hour here on The Curator with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with a discussion from our panelists on the Monaco Daily this week, where Sir William Patey and Terry Stiasny discuss what the diplomatic options are for the US's allies as tension escalates in the Middle East. Both the Americans and the Iranians have said they want to avoid a wider war, mm. but the the sort of uh, attacks that are happening, the the sort of uh, proxies, Iranian proxies who have now now attacked and killed three Americans, um, the American response, if it's not properly calibrated, uh, could lead to an escalation. Uh, there are calls in Washington from uh, more uh, what I'd call f- uh, firebrand politicians that uh, they should attack Tehran. I think that'd be a huge mistake. That'd be a big mistake to attack anything on Iran's mainland. But there are plenty other targets around uh, of the the IRGC-backed militias. And uh, I would calculate that that's what the Americans are looking at to hit a series of targets that uh, of, of militias who've been attacking American troops in their various uh, various locations. Uh, Terry, it is a curious balance Biden has to walk, isn't it? Because realistically, he does have to respond. It's not just that three Americans are dead. It is not to the credit of whoever launched that drone that only three Americans are dead. An attack like this could very easily uh, in future kill multiples of that. But again, he does not wish uh, to, well cause any further trouble uh, in the Middle East. No, I think that's exactly it. He has to strike this balance between taking some action and particularly if you've said we're going to have a very consequential response to this, you've got to do something. But, you know, as William was saying, you don't want to escalate it further than you are prepared to follow through and further than your allies are prepared for you to go, particularly if that means, you know, going across borders into Iran itself. And then you've got to sort of work out these targets targets uh, quite carefully to see, say that, you know, look, we're serious about this, but there's only so far we're going to go. Uh, William, is it a reasonable supposition that there will have been an amount of back-channel communication between Washington and, and Tehran, possibly even to the degree of choreographing this somewhat? There was certainly, if you think back to the Americans' assassination of uh, Major General Qasem Soleimani a few years back, the... Uh, Iranian responses to that, inevitable though they were, seemed almost calibrated to cause as minimal damage as they possibly could while still allowing the Iranians to look like they'd done something. 
Yes, I'd, I'd be surprised if the Americans are talking directly to the Iranians to agree what would be an appropriate response to this. But they will be passing messages. Uh, the, uh, the Saudis are talking to the uh, uh, Iranians and the Qataris are talking to them and the Omanis certainly are. are. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if uh, America is saying to uh, their allies, uh, look... We're gonna we're gonna take uh, reprisals for this. We we don't want a wider war. They'll be saying they'll be ready for one in the same mm. way as the Iranians are saying. They will be sending message to say that this needs to de-escalate. This this can't just uh, tip for tat. That's why that's why I'd be surprised if any of the retaliation involved attacks on Iran itself. Are there any opportunities or options here for de-escalation, Terry? It's, a, again, going back to that curious balance Biden now faces. Well, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. You're talking about who the Saudis, for instance, are talking to. And we've got, you know, David Cameron out going out to Saudi Arabia literally at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking. So you have got people putting input uh, from both sides. And I think it was quite interesting how David Cameron you know, possibly, I don't know, accidentally on purpose said that he was, you know, prepared to think more about a Palestinian state when he was talking to the Arab ambassadors. So there is obviously, you know, diplomatic discussions going on as well. And I think, you know, people are very keenly aware of the problems, you know, the problems, the Red Sea, you know, the this action, how, how long can that can that carry on at the moment? So, yeah, I think there are people are going to be looking for ways to try and not escalate it more than they absolutely have to. I mean, I think David, I don't think that was an accident. I think David Cameron is, is signalling life after Gaza. And the way to de-escalate, of course, is to bring the carnage in Gaza to a halt uh, and to get some sort of ceasefire. Uh, there was some hope that there would be at least a six-week pause. The Qataris have been working hard on that uh, to free the hostages. Uh, uh, and that would be the, that would be a, a start, a, a six-week pause that could then be Negotiated into a into a, a more permanent ceasefire that would have to include Hamas stopping firing rockets, Hamas stopping fighting, and if it was to be long lasting, there would have to be some reinvigoration of a peace process. But I'm not sure Netanyahu and his right wing allies are ready for that. I mean that that conference, attended by eleven eleven government ministers, essentially saying we're going to resettle Gaza and the Palestinians can quote voluntarily leave unquote. It doesn't look like they're ready for much of much in the way of peace. Uh, indeed not. But just just finally, William, and to bring it back to Iran, if we draw out and look at the bigger picture, if you consider their actions and the actions of their proxies since October 7th. Is it clear to you that Iran has any coherent strategy, anything they're working towards here, or are they just, uh, you know, seizing the opportunity to sow further chaos because they can? No, I think it's possible to determine a long-term strategy that which was in play long before uh, long before Gaza, which is to push the Americans out, to uh, make the cost of an American presence high enough that the American become disillusioned and move. They'd like American troops out of uh, out of Iraq. They're, certainly their proxies in Iraq are agitating for that. They'd like them out of Syria. Uh, they, they, they'd, and they'd like them out the, out the region. Uh, now, it's not it's not in the short term likely that that's going to happen, that America's going to close their bases down in Qatar and elsewhere. But that's the Iranian strategy. With the Americans out, they become much more of a regional hegemon, a mm. influence. So I think that's the Iranian strategy, self-preservation, uh, strength and depth, fight your battles outside the land of Iran uh, and, and, and increase your influence. So I think that's where they're coming from.
And also this week, I had the pleasure to speak with Oscar-nominated actor Jeffrey Wright. He's a great actor. Uh, he spoke to me about his role on American Fiction, which is a superb satirical film nominated for five Oscars. Let's have a listen. We sold your book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now, is Stag a pseudonym? Yeah, Mr. Lee can't use his real name. Is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, 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 I don't. Jeffrey, first of all, pleasure to be here. I loved American Fiction. What an excellent film. Thank you. My first question to you, before you accepted the role or before you spoke to Cor Jefferson, the director, have you heard about the novel Erasure or have you perhaps read after you accepted the role? What was your relationship with the novel, first of all? I hadn't heard of the book and obviously hadn't read it. So my first introduction to the character and to the story was through Cord's script, which was just wonderfully drawn. I picked up the book and I read a bit of it and it was clear that Cord had reshaped it in his own image. book is set in Washington, D.C., which is my hometown. Uh, and certain of the you know, catalyzing moments in the book had, Cord had changed in considerable ways. So the script was more useful to me. I read the book later in the process. There were certain things early that were helpful to me. There, there are these lovely moments in the book where Monk steps away from the first narrative and muses on things like fly fishing and the intricacies of outsmarting a fish or woodworking and the smell of cut wood and things like that, which are really kind of these lovely meditations and quiet, like solitudinous moments that told me something about, one, the, the peculiarities of his interests and also about his desire for a type of idealized isolation. But it was really Cord's script that I focused on more so, and also in some ways the book of my life, because there were these overlaps between Monk's circumstances and my own, particularly as relate to his family and his family in crisis and what it, what it implies for him and the position that he is asked to take in the midst of all that. And one thing that I was perhaps even surprised but positively about the film, I was expecting, I mean, of course, it's also a satire, but incredibly emotional. It is the portrait of a family. There's, you know, there's grieving, there's your brother in the film who, who is gay. And there's the, it, so it's quite interesting. It's very much a portrait of a family. I'm not, I'm not even saying a black family here as well. And I think that's quite special. I think some people might think it is a satire, but there's also quite this heavy emotional element to it. I think the satire in some ways is tragedy in disguise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yes, the family for me was really or is the heart and soul of this 
film, and it's also in some ways a kind of response to the absurdity of the satirical aspects of the film in that while he's leading this double life and he's fighting against the outside perceptions of who he should be or who he is, he's leading in real time a kind of ordinary life that is extraordinary even in its ordinariness in that we don't often see it portrayed on film with characters such as these. Yes, it's a family of black folks, but it's a family that's messy and beautiful and functional and dysfunctional and loving in spite of itself. There's a universality to it and there's a welcoming quality to it for uh, audience members. And our hope is that they find, no matter what background or or country, for that matter, that they come from, that they find something of themselves inside of it. It seems that that's happening, and it's um, it's gratifying. You know, the the thing that we're told often by the powers that be in America, you know, who have the hold the purse strings for films like this, is that. Our films, films featuring black characters, don't travel, don't translate outside of the quote-unquote black community. But I think this film is a human story, and I'm looking forward to getting it out there so we can, we can prove too often naysayers wrong. I think the film will travel very well, by the way. Uh, tell us about the cast. I must ask this. I mean, you worked with Leslie Huggins as well, who played your mother, I mean, you were a massive fan of her. So how was it to play with her in the film? And, and of course, the other actors. I mean, you have Issa Rae and Sterling K. Brown, Tracy Ellie Ross. Excellent cast. And Erica Alexander and, and John Ortiz and Myra Lucretia Taylor, who plays Lorraine, the caretaker of the family, and who is so wonderful. But Leslie is an absolute joy to work with. She, like all of us, was so passionate about this story and about being in this film. She's an absolute legend, absolute pro as well. And for example, there's a scene that we filmed outside with her. And, you know, she's, if you see the film, you'll know. And she's, it was very cold. We were near the ocean. Uh, we were in, you know, Massachusetts in the early fall so it was it was not warm <laughs> it was cold and it was at night and we had to do take after take and I was concerned you know that she not get sick but at the same time we that we get the necessary shots for the scene and I was calling up to Cord our director because the crew was up on this seawall while we were you know, we were by the water and I'd say, yes, she's okay. She can do another one. And I'd say, I'd say Leslie, are you okay? She said, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, she's fine. Let's do another one. And then, you know, went on. And finally I said, Leslie, do you think we can do one more? She said, yeah, of course. We're making a movie. And it was just so telling of who she is. Just an absolute pro and totally committed to what we were doing. It's just, just wonderful to work with her. Wonderful. And Jeffrey, are you happy that a film like American Fiction is finally kind of 
being done and getting so much attention. Let's be honest, that means being nominated for the Golden Globes. I have a feeling you'll be nominated for many other awards to come. How do you feel? Because, of course, the film talks about this kind of stereotype of, of black movies, but perhaps, I mean, hopefully this will change, right? Well, uh, if our movie is successful, then maybe it cracks open the door for other movies that may, you know, have been considered not saleable or marketable or whatever you know term you want to choose. It's a bit meta that our film is receiving so much attention in this way, but we're little film. You know, we're we're of the films that have been nominated, I think our budget is smaller than all of them. And we're punching above our weight, I suppose, but while we were making this film we got the sense that maybe we were doing something interesting. Certainly it was interesting to us. And, you know, maybe uh, audiences will agree and we'll have opportunity or others will have opportunity to make more films like this. You are listening to the curator of Monaco Radio. And on the Foreign Desk Explainer this week we ask, what now for Tuvalu? Andrew Muller explains why we should care about the country's election results. As has been noted in the Foreign Desk Explainer before, this year is going to be quite the planetary clamour of the Vox Populi. An extraordinary aligning of the world's election calendars will mean that perhaps half of humanity will cast a vote in 2024, including the citizens of such consequential behemoths as Pakistan, India, South Africa, Bangladesh, Iran, South Korea, Indonesia, Mexico, the United States, the European Union, probably the United Kingdom and Russia, though in the latter instance it is likely that the votes have already been counted. Yeah, that's quite right, really. I mean, it sounds like him, doesn't it? Would not be surprised at all. Yeah. Measured against all of which, it may be difficult for the passing observer to summon much interest in the recent general election in Tuvalu. If we measure these things by population, Tuvalu is the world's least significant democracy. Only one other nation-state on Earth is home to fewer people, the Vatican City, where the results of any election that was held would be even more foregone a conclusion than in Russia. Tuvalu's population of barely 11,000 people, it may seem, renders any election it cares to hold about as interesting in the global context as a mayoral contest in Ulladulla, New South Wales, though Ulladulla is actually maybe a little bigger population-wise than Tuvalu, and it doesn't really have a mayor as such, being overseen by the municipality of Shoalhaven, but we believe the point stands vis-à-vis Tuvalu's apparent obscurity. Just get on with it. However, and bear with us, there are a couple of good reasons to pay attention to this year's Tuvaluan election, one short term, one long term. We will get to both presently, but first, the result may be portended by some sort of drumroll. Actually, hold on a second, couple more items of pertinent preparatory information. There are no political parties in Tuvalu, so everybody who fancies occupying one of the 16 seats in Tuvalu's parliament stands as an independent. 
With such a small electorate, personal networks and connections are key. The incumbent Prime Minister prior to this most recent election, Corsia Natano, retained his seat at the 2019 election with 355 votes. OK, now let's have a drum roll. The headline of Tuvalu's 2024 election is that the 331 votes Natano won this time were insufficient to earn him another term. As Natano sets about identifying the 24 people he upset, Tuvalu's new parliament will have to elect another of their number to become the Prime Minister. And weirdly, given that Tuvalu's parliament wields power over less of humanity than, say, the town council of Thlandidno, their choice could have serious geostrategic ramifications. Flandidno, incidentally, is in North Wales and is a seaside resort with a slightly greater population than Tuvalu, seems quite nice, has the United Kingdom's fifth longest pier, became vaguely famous during COVID-19 lockdowns for being beset by goats, which meandered down from the hills into the deserted streets and ate everybody's hedges. These have probably grown back by now. The reason that Tuvalu's election may end up giving the geostrategic scheme of things a bit of a rattle is that Tuvalu, at least as of this broadcast, is one of a small and dwindling cohort of nations which maintains full diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Since China was admitted to the United Nations in 1971, the deal has generally been that a given country can exchange ambassadors with one or the other, but not both. The underlying issue being that China believes that Taiwan is merely a temporarily rogue province. Picking off Taiwan's diplomatic partners, thereby chipping away at Taiwan's legitimacy, has been a preoccupation of China for decades, undertaken with a mixture of coercion and cajolery. In the last decade and a bit, 11 countries have made the switch, the most recent, the Pacific Guano Atoll of Nauru, earlier this month. The list of countries which recognise Taiwan is now down to 12, mostly clustered in the Caribbean. While outgoing Tuvaluan Prime Minister Natanu was very much pro-Taiwan, his probable successor, Seve Plainyu, is believed keen on reviewing the arrangement. A switch of allegiances by Tuvalu for all that fewer people live there than in the Regent International Apartment Block in Hangzhou would be a triumph for China, a blow to Taiwan and a vexation to the United States and Australia as competition for influence in the Pacific intensifies. Australia in particular has recently sought to embrace Tuvalu. In November, the two countries signed a bilateral agreement which, crucially to the diplomatic shenanigans which may be about to ensue, gives Australia an effective veto over any future security arrangements Tuvalu may wish to enter into with anybody else, not naming any names, but Australia was doubtless fretting about the deal recently done between China and the Solomon Islands, another Pacific country which recently turned from Taipei to Beijing. It's packed with China, 
would allow Beijing to send police and military personnel to the nation, and China could also port some of its warships there. While all of the above is why Tuvalu's election may matter in the short term, it is the other side of its deal with Australia which demonstrates why Tuvalu's long-term prospects are important. Australia laid out a fast track to residency for a few hundred Tuvaluan citizens each year by way of recognising that all Tuvaluan politics and diplomacy may be rendered redundant if the climate crisis languishes unaddressed. The most significant agreement between Australia and a Pacific Island nation ever. This partnership stands as a beacon of hope. Tuvalu's highest peak is 4.5 metres above sea level. On current trends, the entire country could be underwater by the end of this century. As our land disappears, we have no choice but to become the world's first digital nation. Only concerted global effort can ensure that Tuvalu does not move permanently online and disappear forever from the physical plane. It would be something to see China and the United States worrying slightly more about that. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Also this week we had a new Comfort Corner episode out. And for the show we pay a visit to a new exhibition of work by photographer Russell Young in London. The old adage of all that glitters is not gold is a near-perfect analogy for the diamond dust celebrity portraits that make up Russell Young's Dreamland exhibition. Showing me around today is the Maddox Gallery's artistic director Maeve Doyle. She starts by explaining the visceral impact of the shimmering canvases that tower over us. Unless you see Russell Young's work in person, you'd never notice just how incredibly beautiful they are. A JPEG would never cover it. There's something about the diamond dust on the surface of the canvas and the way light hits it that brings them into a magical realm. Russell himself says that fairies come at night, or Tinkerbell specifically, and spreads fairy dust on them. And I guess that's a joke, but it also it's also kind of a metaphor for the fact that they do look otherworldly and they take you into another dimension. The word iconic's used a lot when you look at the images, something like Marilyn Chanel. It's a beautiful photograph. It was used in Time magazine. If you go to the VNA, it's up in her timeline at the Chanel show. But when you see it in Russell Young Diamond Dust, it looks like something from another world. Amongst the celebrities staring out from the large glittering canvases are Jimi Hendrix, Bridget Bardot and Marilyn Monroe, figures as iconic as they were misunderstood. Standing in front of Young's work, Marilyn crying, Maeve tells us more about this paradox. Marilyn, clearly a sex symbol of the 50s, a magnificent actress, very talented actress, but she was known through the media as a sex object, sex symbol. This was a conflict for her because she wanted to be taken seriously. We also know as beautiful and as talented as she was, she had a troubled past, and that's the other side of fame and shame. There was mental illness in her past. None of her relationships worked out. And in this particular piece, Marilyn crying, she could never look more beautiful, but she was coming out of the court where she was divorcing Joe DiMaggio. So the pathos of the beauty is right there in front of you. I think if you look at someone like Bridget Bardot, she ushered in the 60s, was sort of a symbol of a sex kitten. Her husband, Roger Vadim, directed her in When God Created Woman. Fashion still kind of makes note of how she influenced it with the kind of tousled hair and ballet slippers and leopard print. But she was smart enough to leave 
acting and Hollywood at the age of 39, and she started a foundation for animals, which is still called the Bridget Bardot Foundation, where she rescues and cares for animals. Funny how people walk away from something we all aspire to. While it's perhaps obvious why figures such as Monroe or Bardot would spark fascination for the budding fine artist and photographer, Young's path to these diamond-dusted portraits that stand in front of us is an intriguing one. Russell started as a rock photographer, so he would always be around people like George Michael. He did the cover of Faith, and George Michael's the reason he ended up in the States. He was at George's wedding. So working for years as a rock photographer, he really understood the nature of celebrity. And I think when digital photography came in, he tells this story about going up to a mountain and meditating for three days and coming down as an artist. And I believe it was 2004 when he released his first series, which was called Pig Portraits. And it was arrest photos of celebrities like Frank Sinatra or Sid Vicious or Michael Madsen, Juliette Lewis, another great series. So Russell, his own personal history is he was adopted. And the way he tells the story, his father took him to the movies in the north of England and he started to create this mythologized story for himself of what his life could be because he had nothing to lose. There was no family history he needed to shed and he went right into an obsession with celebrity which brought him to California away from the darkness of northern England. So the autobiography in this is personal to Russell. The closer we get to the dazzling canvases, the more questions I have for Maeve about Russell Young's artistic process. When we go to do the printing at Luther's studio, Luther Davis's studio, there'll be eight people carrying all sides of this. So they go through the screen print once, twice if there's two different colors, and then the process of putting diamond dust on takes a lot of people in masks to make sure that they're protected. And uh, it's until you see the process, you don't realize how intricate it is. So the impressions are all unique because nothing ever comes out the same way twice. And it's the same dust or the same technique that Andy Warhol used, is that yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I think there's a story Russell tells about he and Luther discussing what they were going to do next. And Luther came out with this bag of diamond dust and said, why don't we work with this? And it kind of took off from there. Although today, aesthetic beauty is likely to be the main take-home for Dreamland exhibition goers, Young has a more provocative past. Maeve tells me about the first time Young's work piqued her interest. Yeah, I do remember the first time I'd opened my gallery, Doyle de Vere and Ledbury Road, and around the corner there was a gallery called Bank Robber. And they had a picture of Kate and Pete in Diamond Dust, two portraits, styled as the notorious Myra Henley and Ian Brady. And I was blown away. It's a very controversial piece. I don't know if it could be shown now, and this was maybe 15 years ago, and I was just couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I saw The Magnificent Seven, which of course is Yul Brenner and from the movie and the horses coming towards me. And then I met Russell and I just was completely fascinated with the way he was mining celebrity culture. And you talk about the picture of Kate and Pete, the way we see things. I could see them as Kate and Pete because I was from Canada at the time. Other people didn't see Kate and Pete at all. And it, it created such a lot of controversy. And again, I lost perspective that it was Kate and Pete because that's not what anyone was seeing. And on that scandalous note, it was time to head down to the exhibition's lower level, where British model Kate Moss was making another appearance in a trio of colours. Maeve takes me through the careful selection process. 
There's a specific man in Italy who has pigment that you can't get anywhere else, and Russell makes trips down to this place in Italy to buy pigment. Each of the colors he mixes for the specific subject has to do with their biography. So Kate was born in Croydon, and he names the colors after streets in Croydon. Oh, wow. So he buys the pigments and then creates his own colors. Yeah for each of the people. So let's say it was Marilyn and she was living in Hollywood, there'd be Vicente Boulevard Blue, or you get the idea. Melrose Pink. Wow, so he's a very intentional person then. And he certainly immerses himself in it, and you're right, he is a very intentional person. The back of the canvases will have drawings and maybe phrases from, lyrics from songs on them, so the expression comes out everywhere. Back on the ground floor, a canvas placed next to the window draws me in. I love the Bowie. I didn't realise there was a Bowie. That's incredible. I mean, the show at the V&A about Bowie had a piece that said he knew there was mental illness in his family, and I think a little bit about Kusama when I tell this story about the way she handles her neuroses, her compulsive neuroses, is through making dots and working all the time and he had a similar quote where he said he knew there was mental illness in his family and he knew that medication wasn't the cure for it so he found different personas and he threw himself into work and through that you see another world he created that he could live in and he could express himself in and he could manage what he was worried about genetically and he did it for so many of us I mean who hasn't been carried through moments in time by something Bowie did from Bowie to Bardot, Dreamland is a nuanced portrait of what it really means to be famous and an impressive example of what the new Maddox Gallery can do. For Confect in London, I'm Paige Reynolds. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. You are listening to The Curator. I am back here and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. On the menu this week, we sit down with acclaimed chef Daniel Hum of Eleven Madison Park in New York to hear more about his new food and art book, Eat More Plants, released with publishing icon Gerhard Steidel. This is a very special project. and In fact, it was never really meant to be a book because it's really pages of my journal during the pandemic. And when Gerhard, who came to the restaurant with one of my closest friends in the world, who is Ronnie Horn, who is this amazing artist who has worked with Gerhard on many projects, on many books. And of course, also Gerhard has worked with many, many great artists out there. And Ronnie has always spoken so highly about Gerhard and the way he works and his 
quality and his standards and his perfectionism and all of it. And so they came together to have a dinner at the restaurant and it was so nice. And afterwards we had a really beautiful conversation with Gerhard and he was really taken by the meal and it being all vegetables. And he was very curious how it all came to be. And I told him that during the pandemic, I was journaling and journaling and drawing and writing. And that's where really the idea came to life. And so I told him about it and he said, oh my God, I would love to see these journals. And I was like, well, they're not really meant to be seen because they're very personal. But he showed up the next morning to my office right here. And he said, where are they? Can I see them? And we went through them and he was excited to see them. And he said, hey, I really would love to do a book together on these drawings and writings. And it took a little while for me to get comfortable with that because he does art books. I don't consider these artworks. It's just my personal practice. But then as, as I was working with him in Germany for a few weeks, it was just an incredible process. And it made me confident that it is in the right hands and this indeed should be shown in the world. And I'm very proud of it. And it's a very intimate look into the creative process. I think it's very interesting because it is a book about food, but it is an art book. Obviously, the industry of books about food and cookbooks is huge and it's an editorial powerhouse, but this is a very, very different kettle of fish. And I wonder how many people might see it and imagine that there will be amazing recipes inside and find themselves surprised that it's a much more abstract look at what it is that makes the magic of the restaurant. Why make an art book about food? How did the two disciplines come together in your head, art and food? Well, for me, they've always been connected. I had a very powerful experience when I was 10 years old, and my parents brought me to the Laurentiary in Paris to see the Monet water lilies. And I just went through these two rooms, being fully surrounded by these large-scale paintings, and I started to cry. And I didn't know if these were happy tears or sad tears, I was just so overwhelmed emotionally. And from that moment on, I knew that art really spoke to me. So in a way, I've navigated my life almost more through the lens of art than through the lens of food. And I think even the way I create is very emotional, not so much intellectual, I guess. And I've always drawn and I've always journaled. And so to me, they're always been completely linked together. And a lot of my friends are amazing artists. And I feel like we share the same language and the same struggles. And, you know, a lot of artists, even when they get very accomplished, they still feel very nervous to embark on a new body of work and what is the world going to think and is this going to be good enough? And I think I have pushed myself and the restaurant always to new places in the 25-year history of the restaurant. And, you know, no matter how accomplished you become, that feeling of 
oh, this might not be good enough, or what are people going to think, in a way has never left me. It's there as much as it was there when I was 20 years old. And I think artists shared that there is a fragility in the creative process. And for Monocorn Design, we take a trip to Northern England to visit David Maller Design, a company known for designing and making some of the UK's most celebrated cutlery. Monaco's Charlie Fumercourt recently visited the brand's headquarters and factory in the Peak District National Park to meet the team and find out more about their approach to design and manufacturing. David Meller had an outsized impact on British design over the course of his life. As royal designer for industry, he shaped much of the street furniture that we recognize today, from traffic lights to bus shelters to pillar boxes. As well as influencing the public realm, he was also one of the country's foremost cutlery designers, which is what his eponymous company still specializes in today. The company is headquartered in Hathersage, a picturesque village in the Peak District National Park. It's a beautiful site which is nestled in between rolling hills and houses almost every aspect of the business, including the Sir Michael Hopkins designed cutlery factory and the design museum. It is also where David's son, Corin, who took over as creative director in 2006, designed new product lines and prototypes. Really, it all started off with my father's design for a range of cutlery called Pride that he designed when he was a, a student at the Royal College of Art in London way back in 1951. And that design was chosen from the student show by a big Sheffield manufacturer called Walker and Hall, who put that radical cutlery design into manufacture, and it proved to be a, a huge success. So I, I sort of think that really was the starting point of the company. We have a worldwide reputation for knives and forks, but we are a very small family-run little company. We have retail shops. We have two shops in London. We have a retail shop here. We manufacture, so we actually have our own little cutlery factory where we make knives and forks. We're a design company. So we design things for ourselves and also collaborations with other designers and artists. We're an importer. We also export quite a substantial amount of our designs all around the world. Over the last 70 years, obviously, the, the company has developed. How would you describe the company's overall design philosophy uh, and, and your approach to design? The overall design philosophy really is that the designs are perhaps not trying too hard. We do elegant, quiet design. Interestingly, the design philosophy hasn't changed at all. I think the design philosophy remains exactly the same as it was in 1951. And I suppose we're very materials orientated. Designs, for me, have to fundamentally work. They have to perform the function that you're designing the object to do. That's the most important. And I'm very much a sort of believer in, in form follows function to a certain extent. Now, the brand has extraordinary heritage, really, from a design perspective. Could you talk us through some of the most popular and perhaps the most enduring designs that are on offer as part of David Meller? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. And actually, it does create a bit of a problem for me as a designer because many of the, the designs going back to the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s are all still very popular. And I believe that people should be able to buy a product many years down the line. I don't really believe in design following fashion. 
isn't too much. So as a designer, that that's sort of sent me off in different directions because I'm limited to the amount of cutlery designs that we can actually retail. <laughs> Ironically, our biggest selling design today is the original design that my, my father designed in, in 1951, Pride, which to me really does show that if you can do a good design that stands the test of time, you've done a good job. And when I'm designing a new design, I very much am trying to focus on on that design having a quality that will endure time. I mean, to me as a designer, that's really important. I'm not really designing something that is a huge hit and then suddenly out of fashion. That's not what I want. I want my cup and saucer to look as good in 10 years' time as it does today. So we're here in your Hathersage HQ. And, you know, this this kind of complex, particularly the round building, has won numerous architectural awards. As a design business, how important is it for you, and I guess as a designer, to surround yourself with beautiful design and to be in a space that can help your creativity? The built environment is is hugely important. I've always had an interest in architecture and buildings and interior spaces. For me to actually manufacture a good product, making that in a good building just makes sense. And our factory is sort of immaculate as factories go. And I sort of think you get a better product and perhaps people are happier as well. And the same goes for our retail spaces as well. We design everything, you know, so we do design knives and forks, but we also design our shops and we design the shelves they fit on. We design the staircase that you walk down in our Marlebone shop. So the whole environment is is vastly important to me, really. And continuing on concerning your HQ here in Hathersage, it's in the north. It's not in London. And that's quite a unique thing in terms of the design industry, which can be quite London centric in the UK. Why did you decide to to kind of have your HQ here? And how important is it for you to to kind of keep this presence in the north? I've sort of bridged both London and the north, but certainly as a place to make things, the north is substantially better for us. We are in the Peak District National Park, but we're only eight miles away from Sheffield and we still use a lot of the Sheffield trades that are still left. Uh, We have silver plating done in Sheffield. We have injection moulding done in Barnsley. So the north has always been a really good place to actually make things and also a lot of our skilled workers come from the heritage industries that Sheffield is famous for so those skills are inherent with the people. And on this site you you also have a design museum not only does it have a lot of kind of the most famous items of cutlery and, and kitchenware from the David Mellor range but it also showcases your father's work as an industrial designer it showcases some of your work outside of the, the sphere that perhaps David Mellor design is best known as. How important is it for you to showcase this side of things and perhaps make people aware of the legacy of the brand as well? I think it's incredibly important. And I think almost one of the things I'm most proud of doing on this site was I built a, what I call the David Mellor street scene because not many people know that my father designed the traffic lights that you stop at every day, as well as bus stops and bollards. So when you actually enter the site, you walk through the David Mellor street scene, showing you this archive of these amazing designs for the, the built environment. And I suppose what's happened is the site has gradually developed. We did the famous round building designed by Michael Hopkins. And really because of the architecture, people started coming here. 
the whole site has gradually evolved into what it is now. And it's big enough, I think, now as, as a sort of draw for people to actually come to. It's a sort of destination, little mecca, really, of design in the north. Now, Haversage is probably not the first place you'd expect to find the headquarters of an internationally renowned design business. However, its location tells a story in itself. It's just a stone's throw from the city of Sheffield, which during the 19th and 20th centuries was one of the global centres for steel manufacturing and metalwork, earning it the moniker Steel City. Sheffield was also where David Meller began his career over 70 years ago. And despite the decline in industry, the company retained strong links to the city, not least because there is still a vast pool of skilled workers with invaluable metalwork knowledge that has been passed down from generation to generation. Someone that personifies this is factory manager Andrew Chisilovich, who joined David Meller straight out of school in the 1970s and has been with the company ever since. Andrew took me on a tour of the factory and taught me through the David Meller way of working. You've been working here for over 40 years. Yeah. How has the, the kind of manufacturing process changed over that time? By the looks of it, lots of it's still quite similar. You've hit the nail on the head there by saying it looks very similar. It, it is really the procedure, I would say, right from the 1800s, hasn't changed to what we do today. The only difference being that you've got modern machinery that's actually helping you to achieve that same principle as what it was before. I'm walking around, seeing all the team at work, kind of filing down the different items of cutlery, pressing the names into it. You know, there's a lot of skill here. A lot of that skill set comes from nearby Sheffield. Are there many other businesses still doing it this way? I think there might be just a handful. It's ironic, the fact that a lot of it now has tended to go back to what we used to call years ago the Little Mesters, where you used to have little like workshops and people are producing things obviously by hand, but it'd be just like a very small workforce which is a good thing because there is a market out there for quality rather than quantity. The factory is unique in that for all intents and purposes it doesn't look like a factory. It's light, it's airy, it's, you know, it's got a modern design. It's not yeah. what you think of when you think of industry. Yeah. How important is that to you and the team and you know, does it make quite a lovely place to work? Yes, it certainly does. I used to go many, many years ago into Sheffield and I used to go to a lot of these other places where they used to manufacture cutlery and it was so depressing. The great thing about the round building, it's all neat and tidy, which is a better environment in which to work. And obviously then that reflects what we are actually producing. Yeah, do you think that that attention to detail, paying attention to where you're working, do you think that's what sets David Meller cutlery and design apart? Oh, definitely. We we're always down to getting the detail correct. All the shapes have to be spot on. You do tend to start getting an eye for knowing exactly what it should look like when it's finished. Once it doesn't look correct, obviously then, as David used to say, you can't put the metal back on again, so you've ruined it. It's one of these philosophies that we always try and do everything as best we can, and in most cases, it looks pretty good when it's finished. During my visit, Corin Meller pointed out to me that we used knives and forks for hundreds of hours per year. So why not make them a pleasure to use? It's an approach that perhaps goes some way to explaining the company's success over the last 70 years. After all, throughout its history, the company has remained unwavering in its belief in doing things the right way, from a design's initial sketches right through to its manufacture. It's why David Meller cutlery can be found in numerous British embassies 
some of the world's best restaurants, and in the homes of many loyal customers across the globe. And having seen firsthand the care that goes into each and every product, it's not difficult to see why. For Monocle, I'm Charlie Filmercourt. And now, how about we end with something cute? A new exhibition on all things cute, open in London Somerset House. We paid a visit. <gasps> oh, it's perfect! It's so cute! It's really tricky to define it, but in a way that's the point of cuteness. It's unpinned down ability is the thing that makes it interesting. So quite often it can be lots of things all at once. It's very rarely just one thing or another, but that's what makes it so fascinating. Claire Catterall is a senior curator at Somerset House. Cute might be hard to define, but it's certainly not difficult to picture. The new exhibition, Cute, which explores the idea of cuteness in contemporary culture, is an explosion of pink, glitter and bows. And cats, lots of cats. While an obsession with the cute and cuddly might seem tied to our modern world and internet culture, the origin story of cuteness stretches far back into the depths of history. I mean, you can trace it right back, you know, to ancient Greece, for example, with the word acutus, which is where cute comes from, but also to ancient Japan, where they, you know, all the art depicts very cute animals. But our exhibition really starts in the 19th century. So one of the first artists that we show is a photographer called Harry Pointer. And this can be seen as the first cat meme. So Harry Pointer photographed his pet cats in very anthropomorphic poses, uh, like them roller skating, for example, or having tea parties. And then he would add a little caption like, hi, you know, hi, I'm skating. And he would make these into little postcards. And because of like mass production, you know, mass printing techniques, they became really popular. And people, of course, used to buy them and send them to each other. So you can absolutely see that these were the first cat memes. From Victorian cat memes to Hello Kitty spaghetti hoops, not to mention video games and Harajuku street style, at the very least, this exhibition shows the sheer force of the cute aesthetic. And cuteness isn't just about things being sweet. It's wrapped up in much larger questions of power. That's... One of the interesting things about cuteness, I think people will come to the show thinking they know what cuteness is and that it's this adorable aesthetic. But in fact, there is so much more to cuteness than meets the eye. And one thing that's really interesting about cuteness is it does have this extraordinary power. So it makes you want to care for it, which is why quite often cute things present themselves as sad. So if you notice, there'll be toys, you know, that looks a bit sad, um, or artwork that shows children crying. And of course, it all breaks our hearts. And the first thing we want to do is buy it. So that's the thing, because cuteness has this incredible power over people. And it's also what makes it such a great consumer product, because it makes you want to buy it. The world of the cute, which is kind of a feeling more than anything else, is layered and complicated. It's far stranger than we might think at first. 
The line between cute and creepy is often fuzzy, or maybe it's fluffy. And I really love the way that, because cuteness is so ambiguous, and quite often it's neither one thing or the other, or it could be all things at once. So, for example, you have cute characters that are young and old at the same time, say Yoda, for example, Baby Yoda, or E.T. E.T. Sort of young and old, ugly, but really, really cute. So it's kind of extraordinary and a bit confusing. But what's really interesting thing about it is that it sort of allows for things that are other or things that exist outside of the norm to be accepted and loved even and adored. When you think about it, you know, for people who feel themselves outside of the norm for whatever reason. Even women, for example, are othered. But there's whole sort of swathes of our community that feel othered in one way or another. And the way that cuteness can help them find their community and find validation, I think, is is really important. And it, it was one of the things that sort of made me think cuteness has this incredible power that can be really used for the good. To harness the power of cute for good and to bring people together is surely a noble aim. And it's true that the sheer playfulness on display at Somerset House did put a little pep in my step. You can find me in the Hello Kitty disco. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by San Impi and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week and thank you for listening.